We're in a series, it's about uh, Rhythm of Life, and this is introducing a new core value to Oikos Church. We have four values that all of us have been very familiar with through our partnership course called Welcome Home, but we're adding a fifth to it that you're also very familiar with. It's called Rhythm of Life. A couple of weeks ago, I introduced a series, and I, and I said basically that a lot of us are accustomed to living out of rhythm. Um, you look like me trying to dance. Like, that's how you're living your life. We're just so hectic and fast-paced. We live in marginless ways, and we borderline on living in meaningless ways. And so last week, we introduced one of the first features of what Rhythm of Life looks like here at this church. It looks like a Christ-centered calendar. I, I described that our calendars are kind of the water that we swim in. They're, they're invisible but powerful tools for your focus and transformation. You may not have a more powerful tool than your calendar. And for most of us, we just take the inherited calendar from our culture rather than putting Christ at the center of our calendar. But at Oikos, and I'm encouraging you in your own life to put Christ in the center of your calendar, your weeks, and then your years to have this rhythm of telling the story of Jesus. Now, if you wanna go back and check out that teaching, I encourage you to do it. It's probably the only teaching you will ever hear on the calendar. So uh, check it out. This week, though, is, is part three, life-giving limits. Part three, life-giving limits. So it's not just Christ-centered calendars. There's something about life-giving limits that is what we mean by rhythm of life. Before we dive into the text and the sermon, I just want to pray. Um, can, can you just bow your head, maybe put your hand on somebody's shoulder next to you, and let's pray together. Lord God, we are here to receive from you. We invite you to speak for your servants or listen. As we open up your word, would you pour out wisdom from above, the good and peaceful and gentle way of wisdom. And Lord, would you humble us so that we can receive? Would you convict us? Would you comfort us? And would you uh, test us and lead us in the way everlasting? Lord, for those whose hearts are already burdened, and whose emotions are tender because of what we've been singing, I pray that you would be near and you would be gentle. But for those who are just still kind of apathetic and not even really sure what they're doing here, for those who are looking for something, Lord, I'm praying that you would wake us up, that you would say something today to each one of us that we can become more aware of you through this encounter. Uh, in all this, we pray for your will to be done. Amen. All right, we are in, on the Coffee House Bible, page 2 and 3, Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. Every sermon of the series is starting in Genesis and it kind of springboards. But let me, let me introduce this phrase of not enough. <clears throat> where, do you feel, where do you feel like there's not enough in your life? Let me, let me ask you this. Where does it feel like there's not enough? You don't have to answer out loud, but please answer. Some of you may have gone straight to places or relationships. You may have gone to resources. I think a lot of us feel this not enoughness when it comes to resources like time. It, it feels like there's just never enough time in a day. If we had more time, then I'd be able to get everything done. If I had more days in the week, then I'd actually be able to check off my checklist. There's just not enough time. Time isn't the only resource we feel. We feel it with money. We feel the stress of budgets and debt and payments and bills. We, we feel it in terms of our time and our wages. They're, they're connected together. We feel the sense that there's just not enough. We need a little bit more. Time, money, what about energy? Uh, the older I get, and the older my dad gets, <laughs> I just see like a generation into the future of what's coming for me. It's like, I, I'm gonna complain apparently a lot more about my knees in the generation ahead. We, we feel our energy levels drain, not only in a given day, but kind of, we go through seasons of life where we're, we're going at really fast paces and we just feel like there's not enough energy to get everything done that I need. Young mamas feel this a lot. When you're not sleeping, I'm thinking of Natalie this morning, and she's she's trying to take care of new baby Clem and all the other mamas out there. It's just not enough energy to do all that needs to be done. But there's this other resource of wisdom where I think we feel it too. 
What I mean by wisdom is like the skill of living. It's like, if I just knew how to do that, then I'd be better. I need to get on YouTube and search that. I need to figure out how to do. We're, we're constantly feeling like there's not enough skill. There's not enough energy. There's not enough money. There's not enough time. Resources are limited. At least my access to resources. The reality of my life is that resources are limited. And so very often I feel like there's not enough. But when your limited resources meet up with high expectations, that's when instead of just saying there's not enough or I can't do enough, we start saying I'm not enough. I'm not enough is the intersection of limitations and expectations. It's when your limited resources come face to face with somebody's demands or their high expectations. Now, sometimes we, we just crash into our limitations. You get a diagnosis or you, you face a death in your family. You, you just come crashing into it. But for most of us, it's all under the surface. And it, it, it feels like this kind of nagging sense under our skin that I'm not enough. It's not just that I can't do enough or that I don't have enough. It's that somehow I'm failing to meet what I'm supposed to be and I'm supposed to do. You ever feel like I'm not enough? That question was, where do you feel like there's not enough? And I think most of us, we probably don't think of just resources. We think of spheres of our lives. We think of places like, like school. I was reading a book. It's, I quote a lot of books, you know that, and I don't mean that you should read them all. Here's one that would be very good if you read it. It's by Kelly Capich, and it's called You're Only Human. You're Only Human. It won a Christianity Today Book of the Year and like popular level theology. It was, it was great. Several of us have read that book, and so if you need a copy, just let me know. We probably have five circulating through what goes right now. But what, what Kelly says, he says, he's a college professor. He's got kids who are teenagers. He says, I see this all the time with kids at school. They've absorbed the view that this pattern of starting at 7.30, going to 3.30, then packing their day after school, and then doing homework all the, all the time after that. He says they, they've absorbed this idea that that's right and expected. Not only that it's good, but it's expected. Pack your day from morning to bedtime with as many things as possible. Consequently, he says, many students who have been rushing around like this, they can't keep up. And they've come to believe that they are disappointments, weak or worse. They can't keep up, and they equate this inability with a moral shortcoming on their part. College students, if you ever feel like you're not enough because there's too much to do between work and class and paper, and it's like, maybe there's just not enough to actually do all of that. Somehow we've absorbed the idea that we have to meet all the expectations even though we have limited resources. It's not just school though, is it? It's also, it's also work. Capitch, in my work there are always people and projects that need more attention than I can give them. Do you ever feel like that? It's like if I just try to meet everyone's checklist around me, I can't get it done. Especially if I want to go home and spend time at my church or in my family. Have you ever gone to a ministry meeting and you were so moved by some opportunity to volunteer or to give? Now, and being in ministry, I'm at a lot of these meetings and it can be very hard. Because it seems like there's there's literally more than a thousand nonprofits in Shelby County. It, there's so much good stuff that needs to be done. And it's just like, well, I need to sign up for this and this and this and this, and I have my job, and I have all these other expectations. Is there actually enough to do all of this? It says everybody um, desperately is requiring time and resources. So someone can care for the poor, or adopt an orphan, or come alongside the prisoner. And yet, how rarely do I participate? And when I do, do you ever feel this? When you participate in ministry, it feels like a tiny drop in a massive empty bucket of need. Shouldn't I do more? And so we sense this limitation, and so we start coming up with defenses. Well, maybe it's just not that important. Maybe it doesn't actually need to be done. But of course, this dismisses the teachings of Jesus and what we know to be true in our gut. We just have this, this wall we keep hitting with our limits. Not just ministry, 
might be most of all family. Um, there's nothing that shows you your limits like having a child. And then nothing showed me my limits more than having a second child. It was just like, I, I thought I had reached my max, my limits, and now I had to keep another person alive. In addition to keeping this toddler alive and this marriage intact, it, it become, all of it, just juggling, becomes somewhat consuming. But especially as the kids get older, we adopt this mindset that, again, Cappage, he says we have this inclination to either overschedule our children's lives or to imagine that our kids should be stars in everything. He calls it the myth of excellence in everything. He says you sign up your kids for all kinds of sports and art stuff and after school stuff, and not to mention the school stuff. And he says, and then you tell them that they're the best at it, that they'll succeed at it. And if they don't succeed, he says, we lie to them and we tell them they're amazing at everything, hoping one day it will be true. And kids start to believe the problem lies not with their own shortcomings, but with the judges, with the teachers, or in my experience, I've seen it with the referees, with their peers, with anyone and everyone but themselves. And although meant to encourage self-esteem and success, this strategy eventually undermines our children's long-term self-esteem and view of self because the myth of excellence at everything cannot be sustained. So you have children who think they're good at everything, and if they're not good at everything, it's somebody else's fault growing up into adults who still think they have to be good at everything. And the reality is you can't. We're limited. We see these limits, and these are just four, but we could keep going, right? This isn't to mention the landscaping and, and cutting the grass and getting the right Bermuda seed to grow. This isn't to mention all the other things about your, your physical health, and your lifestyle, and your other relationships. There's so much where we run smack dab into our limits. So what do we do? when we come face to face with our limits? What do we do when we feel like we're not enough? Capitalist says we do one of two things. He says you either shut down or you like hit, hit overdrive. But I just know in our community, most of us, when we feel like we're not enough, that's when we get busy. That's when we get busy. What do we do when we feel like we're not enough? This is from an uh, article a few years ago in the New York Times, Tim Kreider. He says, this present hysteria is not inevitable, it's a choice. Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance. Does that make existential reassurance? It makes us feel better about ourselves. A hedge against emptiness. You see, if we feel like we're not enough, there's nothing that makes you feel like something, like more to do. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. But the odd thing, this is Catfish one last time, the odd thing is that even when we run into our inevitable limits, we often hang on to the delusion that if we just work harder, if we simply squeeze tighter, if we become more efficient, we can eventually regain control. So you ever feel like you're not enough, or you don't have enough, or you can't do enough? Genesis chapter two and three has incredible wisdom for people who feel like that. Genesis two is about the creation of humans. And I have good news for you. You're only human. So I want to dive into Genesis 2 and 3 and look at what it means to be human and how humanity and limits and sinfulness kind of all wrap in together. And then we'll look at Jesus and then I'll make some observations about what life-giving limits look like for us as a church and invite you to explore what they could look like for you. So let's start with this, this point from Genesis chapter 2 about the design of our limits. Number one, the design of our limits. And you know the creation story we looked at the last couple of weeks. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates each day at a time. And then the pinnacle of his creation story happens in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And there he says, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. And then after he creates mankind in his image and likeness, he says this in verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was 
very good. Man and woman created the pinnacle of creation. Very good. I've worked on a few projects with Don, my father-in-law, and sometimes we walk away from our creations and we say, good enough. <laughs> or he'll say, it'll look good for my house. <laughs> That's not what God's doing here. It's almost like God knows what he's doing whenever he starts a project. He's like, yeah, that's what I wanted. He looked at man and woman designed by him, and he says, that's it. He doesn't say good enough for government work, Daryl. He doesn't say good enough for my house. He says, that is very good. This is fascinating to me because that's not how I feel. I don't feel very good whenever I think of how I'm designed and made by God. And yet, that is what God says and declares. And is it true that he feels about us? Very, very good. But how did he make us? This very good design of God includes us in very limited ways. Take a look at verse 7 of the next chapter. It says, the Lord God formed now, in Genesis 1, he's been using, he made, he created. It's, it's these big cosmic words about him just doing things. That's not this word formed. Formed is the language of a potter. Formed is the language of somebody, I'm looking at you back there, Bell Tower. So, it's, it's, it's formed by hand. It's not just mass produced. He, he took it says he formed a man from the dust of the ground, from, from dirt. We are from, from dirt, but formed by God like clay. This is all over scripture, actually. This, this idea that Isaiah 64, oh Lord, you are our father, we are the clay. You are the potter, we are the work of your hands. We are handmade by a designer. He looks at his design and says, that is good. That's very good. But formed from dirt. Dirt. I mean, it's one commentator. He says, dirt suggests frailty, fragility, flimsiness. It, he says, it also suggests that the body was dark, not white. I'm like, was he making it out of white sands in New Mexico? No. <laughs> he's, he's making brown bodies here, probably. And he's making it from dust, from dirt. And this is a theme in scripture too, that, that the fact that we come from dirt is itself a sign of our limits, that we're designed with limits. All come from dust, all return to dust, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. We're not only from the dirt, we were made for the dirt. Man, I've been listening to this country song by a guy named Jordan Davis called By Dirt. The script boys, they come to our group very often, and they put this on our, our TV, and Michael's been ragging me about listening to country music, but I just can't shake this song. The truth about it is, it all goes by real quick. You can't buy happiness, but you can buy dirt. You can buy dirt and thank the good book for it, because he ain't making any more of it. You see, there's something about dirt that is who we are. We're, we're from it. We're for it. If you look at Genesis 2, verse 5, he says, when there wasn't any, any person, any man to, to work the ground, it says, that's what we're here for. We're not here as, as slave labor to do the work of, but it, it's just part of who we are. We are made to get our hands dirty. We come alive when we're in the earth, when we're out in creation and in nature. So when we work with the earth, it's human. This makes us more of ourselves. And so we are formed from dirt, made for the dirt. But look at what he says. We're formed, but then it says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. We're, we're dirt plus breath. Breath. Man, Michael did a great job picking some of these songs today. He, he introduced this new song, Breathe. I haven't sung so much about lungs and oxygen before, I don't think, but there's this idea that Every breath we take is borrowed. That, that's Genesis 2 7. We, we are the manufacturers of breath. Every breath is borrowed, and it's borrowed from the breath giver. 
God is the one who breathed. God breathed. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. This is, once again, a theme in Scripture about our limits. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. The breath is God, his power put into action, because his breath is his creating power. It's not only his creating power, it's his sustaining power. Psalm 104. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. God is what holds us together, what gives us life. Acts 17, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. Does that make sense? That we are sustained every breath of every moment, even when you fall asleep. Your breath sustains. How? Because of a gracious gift of God that he breathed life into your The moment he takes it away, we're back to dust. We are sustained by this act of breathing. It's, it's beautiful. I was thinking this weekend a lot. Um, Suzette and Daryl and Cheryl kind of looking death at, straight in the face. And I was thinking of the time when our family was at Baptist Hospital in the ICU and Papaw was there. And we, we got in a circle and we all sang. Because Forget the ICU. Have you ever been to a funeral? We sing How Great Thou Art, but I can't sing How Great Thou Art without thinking of a hundred funerals. And not in a bad way. It's just like, what else can we do but give our breath back to the one who's taken breath? We, we sing. We, we live on borrowed breath and we return. This, this is the theme with that song, right? This, this is Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. We, that's, that's all we can do. We are so limited. Our very breath depends on the breath giver. We are dirt plus breath, and that makes us into a living being. Now in the King James, this is the first occurrence of the word soul. We became a soul. Now the, the big problem with this, is that this isn't actually the first occurrence of this Hebrew word so far. We're only in Genesis 2, but every creature that God breathed life into them became a nephesh in Genesis 1. The sea creatures became nephesh. The land creatures became nephesh, and we become nephesh. We become, it's not a soul in the sense of something that lives on and on and on eternally. That's not what Genesis has in mind. After all, there's a tree of life the tree of life is the way to live on forever. That's why he puts up the guard so that they won't eat of it and then live forever. Instead, the word nephesh is about, it's about a breathing organism. It says we become alive. We become breath people. Not dirt bags, but yes, dirt. <laughs> but sustained by the gracious gift of God. We become a very good, but very limited design of a heavenly potter. So, the Lord God took the man, he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is language that's later used of the priest in the temple. They're not only gardeners, they're guardians. They need to protect this place, this presence of God. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. I love this language. You are free. Freedom. It feels like no limits. You're free any tree except one. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm really excited about next week to talk more about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it seems like knowledge of good and evil is something we should want, and that's a good, good clue. Much more next week, come back. So don't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. He says you're not only made limited, breath, plus dirt. But then you were, God has these designs for limits for you. A couple of observations about these limits though. The design of our limits. First, we need to see that we are limited and good. Can you hold both of those things together? That our finiteness does not equal our fallenness. You were made to be limited. Your limitations your, your humanity, your dust plus breath, your, your limits of work and rest, your 
your need to be in the dirt, all of the limits that God put in us are part of his very good design. You are limited and you are good. Secondly, we're limited for our good. Don't want to play with this phrase a lot, but do you see that the, the first limitation that God places on the freedom of humanity, he says, I, I, you can have it, you're free, any tree, but not that one. Why not, God? That's the one I want. Well, that one will kill you. <laughs> the, the first limitation of Scripture that, that we push back against, God says, I'm doing this for your good. It's almost like a parent. My dad was telling stories this weekend. He says, one time he came home from work, and it smelled a little like, like smoke. And there were these black marks going up from an outlet, and there were keys right underneath. <laughs> it's like... You can tell a child not to put keys in the socket, but at some point, they're just going to choose it. We have limitations and rules put in place by God for our good. We are limited and we're good, and God's limits for us are for our good. But all of this is put to the test. So let's, let's look at the second point. The second movement of the sermon is our desire for no limits. We have the design of our limits, but now we're going to look at our desire for no limits. Of course, this is all where it starts in Genesis chapter 3. We see that the first temptation is to desire no limits. Now, the serpent was more crafty. He's clever. He's scheming in some ways than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, this is interesting. This is all in the singular. He's only talking to the woman. Now, the previous command, you're free, don't eat of this tree, was given singular to the man. Now, he's isolated the woman. And he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This, if you were just reading, God actually said the opposite of that. God says, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. But with the one limitation, that's the one we focus on. And so it, it feels to, the, to the, the, the woman interpreted through the serpent that God must have said something like this. He's putting God to the test. This this is very um, sinister. Now this serpent, there's lots of questions about the serpent, but can we just hold those for another day? We'll talk about talking snakes um, another day. I think there's something really important theologically true to find here. So if you can, just hold on to, to that idea. But the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from, from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. This is interesting. She seems to have added part of the command. Now, the Old Testament is not big on this. The book of Proverbs says, if you add to the testimony of the Lord, you're a liar. The book of Deuteronomy, whenever it gives the law, it says, don't add to this, don't take away from this. If you do, that way is death. She's adding to it. She says, you must not touch it or you will die. But the serpent said, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, knowing good and evil. Now, there's so much happening here, but let's focus in on the limits and what the serpent does to it. You see, the first temptation is to desire no limits. It's almost like I don't have to obey a command if I don't understand its logic. So if, if I can just be convinced that God may have said that, but if I don't understand it, it can't be true. There's, there's this original sin, Catherine says, has the shape of taking the one thing that wasn't given to them. He says it's subtly insinuating doubt and uncertainty. The serpent introduces distrust. With these indirect tactics, the serpent encourages his hearers to imagine that they can and should know more. They should be more. He implies, the serpent, that divinely given limits are a fault to be overcome rather than a beneficial gift to be honored. You see the, the tempter, what he's doing? He's saying that there's more for you. This isn't enough. You were made for more. You were made to be like God, forgetting that they were made in the image and likeness of God in chapter 1. But you can be even more like God, knowing good and evil. God knows he's holding out on you. 
There's something more for you. Go beyond your limits and you'll find true life. Now, this message is the message of American culture. Let's save that for just a second. Let's finish this section. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, it's good, after all. Why not? It's pleasing to the eye. It, it looks good, too. This chef has presentation. And also, desirable for gaining wisdom. Oh, it can give me the knowledge of good and evil. So she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. That's enough for, that's also another day. And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What's fascinating is that by desiring to go beyond our limits, our limits end in that feeling of not enoughness and shame. You see, it's when we go straight beyond the limits of God's design that we begin to feel that weight of shame, that need to be covered, the need to be hiding from the, the sight of God. They had to be challenged to trust God for their knowledge, and they declined to do so. And so now they have this voice of accusation from the serpent and from themselves. Of course, it's pretty pathetic to think that you could cover yourself from God with fig leaves. It doesn't work. And so they hide, but instead, the Lord shows up, and he invites them to go for a walk. We'll talk about that more uh, next time. So our desire for no limits. We said that our limits are a part of God's very good design, and we also said that we're limited for our good. Now, in the United States, this message needs a defense, because most of us don't think limitations are for our good. We think of limitations as like strangleholds. We think of limitations as something that takes away freedom from us. So, where does this idea that we have come culturally come from? Well, it comes from a lot of places, but mostly it comes from postmodern philosophers. You see, in the history of the world, there's been a lot of ways to define freedom. You could say that freedom is located in rationality or in free will, like Immanuel Kant said. Or you could say that freedom is located like Hegel. It's in the progress of people into our inevitable progress in, into prosperity. But then the postmoderns come along and they say, no, True freedom is found in the absence of constraint. It's actually in destroying every claim to authority. It's in claiming any absolute is an affront to your freedom. Except this one, of course. This one is the source of true freedom. So they begin to say that each person can do their own thing. One shouldn't criticize another's values because they have a right to live their own life just as you do. And so now, the only sin, one philosopher says, the only sin which is not tolerated is intolerance. The only, another scholar, the only publicly shared and acknowledged moral value of our culture is freedom. And we define freedom as the absence of constraint. No one can tell you no. But this actually isn't how freedom works. And I think all of this is really intuitive. This just isn't freedom. When, when Kelsey was a kid, she dreamed of being an Olympic gymnast. She, she was very skilled. She competed, uh, competed at a national level. But at some point, if she was going to progress in her abilities and in her freedoms in the gymnastics realm, she was going to have to make sacrifices to her freedom in many other ways. She was going to need to go to a different gym in a different place. She was going to need to have a very different high school experience. And at some point, every choice of freedom is a choice between freedoms, not a taking of all the freedoms. This is, this is true in every sphere. My nephew, he competes in high jump. If he wants to be good at high jump, he's going to have to sacrifice his freedom to get there. Otherwise, he'll never enjoy the freedom of jumping, whatever, six feet in the air at some point. Now, you're not an athlete, you're looking at me. If you want a good income, you're gonna to have to sacrifice your time to go get educated and then to show up diligently to work and to put in, if you, you see, every choice is a choice between freedoms. You can't have it all. There's no such thing as freedom as the absence of constraint. That's not reality. That's not this world. When I graduated from high school, I went away to college. I wanted to get a degree, and I wanted to have a family. 
and work, and all of those were choices against my freedom. I chose them, but they were choices to sacrifice something for the sake of those freedoms. Now, I had other friends in high school who didn't want those things. They wanted to live at home for free, and so they still are. <laughs> They're very free in some sense, except they are not living the freedom of the life that they actually want. You see, every choice of freedom is a choice of which constraints to put on. We think, well, true freedom is getting to say, well, I get to choose which, which limits I want. I get to, I'm free as long as I'm doing what I want or what I desire. But no, true freedom is not getting to follow your desires. It's like you can desire to ride a bicycle in a pool, but if you want the freedom of moving through water, you're gonna to have to ditch it. What? If you, switch the metaphor a little bit. If you wanna run the St. Jude Marathon with puddle jumper, like little floaties, I guess you're free to, but why would you? That's, that's not how you're designed to live and to move and to thrive. These, these aren't making any sense, are they? These are just dumb illustrations. But the idea that true freedom is getting to follow your desires, one scholar says, that's too simplistic. We don't really freely choose most of these because they're necessary limitations in life. You're just recognizing the limitations that are actually there in the world, and they're there independent of your desires and choices. Your body has limits. And if, if you want health, you have to follow your body's limits. These are realities. You don't choose them or you don't get to, I desire to eat s'mores and hot chocolate every night and not gain any weight. Well, that's good for you. But you can't choose that freedom just because you desire it. You may want to drive your boat on land, but it's going to get grounded. Unless you honor your, your body's limits, you'll never experience health. Unless you honor the limits of a relationship, you'll never experience love. You aren't free to do whatever you desire, whatever you choose. I guess you can choose it, but then you have to live with the outcomes of it. So what I'm saying is that in, in Genesis 2 and 3, the, the limits, the constraints that are placed on, on us are actually for our thriving. And Scripture consistently bears witness that all of God's constraints are for our freedom. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. Where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. If you want freedom, it's found within the designs of God. This is good news. It doesn't mean that you have to go beyond your limitations. It actually means you need to settle into your limitations. Your limitations are part of God's good design. You don't have to go beyond them to become God. In fact, that is the great temptation that was our downfall. To step into being truly human is enough. Scripture calls this the law of liberty. To live within God's design sets you free in spectacular ways. Now, there's going to be a few issues where this kind of comes up, and we're just not convinced that this is true. But at least for the most part, I think all of us can agree that where we find the right limits of how we're designed with, to live in this world, that's when we truly thrive and experience the most freedom. Tim Keller, in his book, Making Sense of God, he says, when God says, here are the commandments, the moral directives, don't lie, don't be selfish, don't bear false witness, he says, these directives come from your designer. They aren't busy work. To break them is to violate your own nature. It's to lose freedom just like a person who eats the wrong foods and ends up in a hospital. That's, that's Genesis 3. I want to protect you from a poisoned fruit. I want to protect you from death. I want life and peace and flourishing for you. But it's going to have to be within these limits. And if you can trust me, I'm going to give you life. You know, I was watching this show called Alone. Anybody seen the show Alone? They streamed some on Netflix. It's a wilderness survival show where people are dropped into the wilderness of Canada with basically nothing but a bow and arrow and an axe. And they're, they're responsible for staying alive. And whoever stays alive longest out in the wilderness wins. It's a really cool show. Uh, amazing skills. I was so fascinated by how many limits are in the show. I mean, they don't have houses, they don't have cars, they don't have people, they don't have food, they don't have refrigerators, and yet, Tom, one of the guys on the show, 
He says, I feel made whole by this experience. There's something about limits that when they meet up with our design, they bring life out of us and wholeness. So where do we see these? Uh, let me go quickly here. Number three, uh, freedom is found in the limits of our design. But number three, the limits of our designer. What I want to show you is just real quickly how this plays out in the person of Jesus. The good news isn't just that God made you good and limited. It's that God became limited for your good as well. But look at this in, in Mark chapter 1. We could go to many different places to look at the, kind of this point. But it says this, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they explained, Everyone is looking for you! But Jesus replied, Let's go somewhere else. To the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. I've been so struck by this for six weeks. I mean, I showed up to six weeks ago, and I was just reading from my journal about how limited Jesus was. Jesus was a man who got tired and had to go to sleep. He got so tired, he would sleep through storms on ships. Jesus was a man who got hungry. At John 4, he sent his disciples in to go get food. He's thirsty. He says, woman, can you give me something to drink? He, he knows what it's like to be limited, to live within the limits Fully. Hebrews chapter 4, it says he, he understands our weaknesses and our temptations. He experienced them in all points, just like you. And yet, he was without sin. Jesus would show up at some places, like Nazareth, his hometown. And he would preach and he would try to do miracles. And you know what Jesus couldn't do? He couldn't do miracles. He couldn't make converts. Sometimes he would be so in demand, everybody's trying to find him and grab him and get stuff from him, and he would have to walk away because he had more things to do. He didn't have enough time. He didn't have enough money to help everyone who was in poverty. His disciples one time, they said, silver and gold, we don't have any to give you. I give you what I got, though. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He didn't have enough energy. He's exhausted. He tells his disciples in Mark 6, let's just rest a while. And of course, the people, they swarm him. He says, all right, let's go out on the boat. Let me go up on the mountain. I just have to get some peace. I need to get away. The, the limits of Jesus are all over the stories of the Gospels. It's not just that he, he experienced tiredness and exhaustion. It's that he experienced the limits of productive ministry, the limits of productive work. Jesus was limited in every sense that you can imagine, and yet he was perfect in sinless. You see, his limits weren't related to fallenness. His limits are part of God's good design. You and your limitations, you can live a perfectly fulfilled human life, theoretically. You can live a perfectly fulfilled human life and not get beyond your limits. In fact, that's the only way to live. Jesus wasn't pulled and pushed by the whims of people, or even the needs of people. Jesus was so in tune with what his father wanted that that's all he focused on. I've got other things to do, and he would walk away from people in need. How can you do that, Jesus? Well, I mean, he's pretty in tune with his father, but it's because of his limits. He can only do what a human can do, who's God incarnate. So all the theological debates, I, yes, God has come in the flesh. But he comes fully in the flesh to be limited. This, this is a mystery. I just can't even put into words how puzzled I am by this and what that might mean for me. That if my Savior couldn't please everyone, couldn't convert everyone, couldn't help everyone, even in Galilee, then how could I expect to invent this? But at the same time, it's not that he became hard-hearted to it. He didn't become indifferent to it. He would weep at the death of his friend Lazarus as he got to his tomb. He didn't get there in time. 
He would weep as he looked over the city of Jerusalem. He was moved. He cared deeply. But he knew where his limits ended. And he lived there. To the glory of God and to his own death. This is amazing that Jesus is walking away from people, unable to help them over and over again, but he understood his mission. Jesus was so terrifically busy, but only with the things that he was supposed to be doing. So in this vein, what would limits look like for a church, or what would limits look like for you? Now, when we talk about rhythm of life, yes, we mean Christ-centered calendar, but we also mean limits. You know, we're currently in the process of going through our ministry teams to explore what it would look like to put life-giving limits into our teams and for our staff and just as a church calendar. Here's a couple of features of what it will look like to practice life-giving limits. The first one is margin. Margin. Richard Swinson, in his book on margin, he says margin is the space between our load and our limits. It's the space between our load and our limits. It's the amount allowed beyond that which is needed. It's something held in reserve for contingencies or unanticipated situations. Margin is the gap between rest and exhaustion. The space between breathing freely and suffocating. He gives a bunch of examples, but I thought of a few for this week. Marginless is having diesel in your water supply. Margin is having a friend's house to go to. Marginless is having your power go out. Margin is having a community to rely on. Marginless is having a tree fall. Margin is having a family who can help you out. And so margin is about finding the distance with your time and your money and your energy between your load and your limits. And a key part of finding margin is life and community. There's another dimension, what life-giving limits look like, and it's this balance between work and rest, of Sabbath. Now, we see this in Genesis 1, we see it in Genesis 2, but there's this, this rhythm of work six days and rest. There's this stop and rest that keeps showing up in the story. And one scholar, he says, whatever your take on the specific do's and don'ts of Sunday Sabbath, I hope every Christian can agree that God has made us all from the dust to need regular times of rest. I'm especially thinking of young people, and as many of our kids are teens or are about to begin being teenagers, I'm, I think sleep deprivation is one of the number one spiritual issues of our day. D.A. Carson, he calls... Um, getting sleep, a spiritual discipline for the normal course of things. I think that's totally right. He says, our physical existence is tied up to our spiritual well-being, to our mental outlook, to our relationships. So sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep. And many of us are not sleeping enough. <laughs> now, I'm not saying you're unable to sleep. That's a different issue, perhaps a health issue. But some of us are just choosing to not get enough sleep. You were made from dust. You are on borrowed breath. Rest. We tend to assume that it's godlier to forgo sleep for more important activity, but God didn't make us that way. We can't go without sleep very long without doing our bodies and our souls great damage. I see the stats on the sleep habits of teenagers, and I see stats on the rise in mental health. And so many scholars are beginning to put these together and they say the issue isn't so much social media, the issue isn't so much a cell phone, it's sleeplessness. And so Jillian, Josie, Rebecca, Caleb, can you put away the phone at night and sleep? <laughs> Not to be too direct. Speaking of that, um, I, I want to invite you to explore this. I don't know what this needs to look like for you, but there needs to be some life-giving limits when it comes to our digital devices and screens. Now, Andy Crouch, in his book, Tech Wise Family, he says he recommends one hour a day of no screens. One hour a day, one day a week of no screens, one week a year of no screens. One hour a day, one day a week, one week a year. I bet there's part of you that thinks that sounds awesome. And I bet there's part of you that thinks that sounds miserable. <laughs> But I think it's, it's a limit. It's not saying I'm, I'm just going to go straight flip phone or landline. It's just saying I need to find for my own humanity some life-giving limits here. And in the place, I, 
I think, a no-screen zone, not only in time, but also in space. Uh, our, our family, I've shared this before, our dinner table is a no-screen zone. We, we just put screens somewhere else, and this is kind of a, a space where we're just going to talk. We're going to see each other, look each other in the face, we're going to pray, we may sing. So, can you set some digital limits that are part? Can you put some constraints that actually help you come alive and experience freedom? Last one, and I know I'm moving quickly here, it's just to find some relational limits. Um, a lot of us struggle with codependency and our well-being gets wrapped up in how other people think of us. And so, to just be able to figure out healthy boundaries, I'm just mentioning this, and this may be a seed that the Lord uses for you, but some of us need some relational boundaries that look more like the boundaries of Jesus, who can just walk away from people in need because he knows he has his Father's will to be about. He can't do everything, and he can't please everyone, but he can obey the guidance of the Spirit of God that leads him. So, life-giving limits. Limits for the sake of life. Basically, it's this. You're only human. You're free from the burden of being God because God took on the burden of being human for you. This is the really wonderful thing about living within limits. It's that most things that you live for end up enslaving you. They end up accusing you. They end up incessantly nagging and feeling like you're not enough. That's not our God. Our God is the one who will die for you. Our God is the one who will take on limits for you. Our God is the one who went to the cross for you. He's there to set you free. And he does it by being human. So I invite you to Jesus. Let me uh, just offer a prayer. Would you stand and then would you go get your kids and I'll dismiss you. Lord God, would you plant seeds where we need it for life-giving limits? And where there was something unhelpful or a seed that uh, wasn't good, would you just blow that away? But Father, if there's something that we need to hear in our lives, when it comes to margin and how we use our time and our money, when it comes to rest and how we practice Sabbath, when it comes to digital limits or relational limits and saying yes and no, would you just sink that in and bring that back up and resurface it? Would you grow that in so Father, we are amazed at your love for us and how limitless it is, how in your power you can bring dust to life, and how you make us just rightly sized and human for life with you. We're amazed by all this, and yet we see in ourselves that temptation to go far beyond. So Lord, turn our hearts back towards you to rest in your sufficiency. Teach us to number our days for your glory and kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.